Well, there are lots of conversations these days about global superpowers. As we approach another election cycle, which I know everyone is so excited about, we'll continue to hear conversations about what makes a nation great on the world stage. These global superpowers are characterized by their ability to exert influence, so much power that when this nation would make a decision, its decision would reverberate far beyond its own borders. What qualities, what strategies, what abilities does a nation require to be a global superpower? What comes to mind? Is it money? Certainly. A strong military? Absolutely. Perhaps a touch of diplomacy, that too necessary. Well, historically, this term global superpower uh, comes to us after World War II, speaking specifically of the United States and the Soviet Union. Of course, we know after the Cold War, the Soviet Union no longer considered a global superpower. And since then, many arguments about are there still global superpowers? Are there one? Are there many? But these aren't new thoughts, are they? perhaps the terminology, but as we go back into history, as we go back into the biblical times, we find these realities of nations rising and nations falling. And as these nations rise, they so influence the world around them through the arts, through economics, certainly through religion and worship. But it seems to be the same old story, nations rise and nations fall. Well, our women's Bible study for the last few months has been going through uh, the prophecy in Daniel and has seen this happen time, time again, where Daniel has these very strange visions, seeing these great beasts that represent some kind of global power. And it would seem that these great beasts are too mighty to fail until another one comes along that's a little bit stronger and takes them over. And according to Daniel, this will be the cycle of world history. Nations will rise, nations will fall. And as soon as you suspect that a nation is too big to fail, you could probably safely assume that the demise is is sooner than you think. Which is, of course, is a bit unnerving for those who live in the borders of a global superpower. Daniel's visions are of import to us. For they tell us that neither faith in or fear of these realities is the right response. For there is a plan of God, a plan of God that is much bigger than the rise and fall of these seemingly great nations. That there is one that is coming that will conquer, that is mighty to save, that is mighty to be victorious. Of course, the exact plan for this, as we find throughout the prophets, keeps getting sealed up. (laughs) What is it? What does it mean? How will it unfold? Well, if the prophets tell us that the plan is sealed, this morning in Revelation, we find the unraveling of this scroll, if you will. But at least in our text this morning, we, we don't get the specifics of what the plan is. Instead, we get more specifics of who is worthy to carry this plan out. And the song especially, that these myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands of heavenly hosts sing, give us 
the qualities it requires to conquer the world. That's what we'll consider this morning as we consider this psalm. And I want to break up our text into three sections, the first being a sealed strategy, the second being breaking the seal, and then finally the song of the Lamb. So let's consider this sealed strategy. Well, it's difficult to parachute right into the middle of Revelation. (laughs) Frankly, it's difficult to start at the beginning as well. But to give a little bit of context for what's going on, John's apocalypse or revelation begins with an angel delivering a message. And this message contains all the things that must soon take place. As it turns out, John, who receives this vision, the seven churches that he writes to in the first few chapters, and us here today are all living in the end times. According to Revelation, as John says we're all partners in the tribulation. Turns out the end times are really, really long. Like an M. M. Night Shyamalan movie where the ending just never really comes. But that seems to be the reality that we live in. Well, in the verses directly preceding our passage this morning, we find that John is, is brought up into God's heavenly chambers. Heavenly chambers to receive a vision. This too is not a new reality in John's apocalypse. In fact, the prophets before him over and over again are brought up into this heavenly, uh, you could say throne room. You might think of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, being brought up into heaven to see the Lord's glory before giving this message for his people. This is a common occurrence for many of the prophets of God We find that they are brought up into the glory presence of God and and revealed a message. Moses at Sinai, kind of the paradigm prophet. Amos, we find him having a similar experience. Of course, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Even Jesus, as he is transfigured on the mount, is then announced to be a prophet like Moses. This is my son. Listen to him. Which has led many commentators to, I would say, rightly conclude that this is not a unique thing, but it is part of the requirements for being a prophet, to be brought up into this heavenly council and to be shown the glory of God, to be prepared to deliver the message. Well, as we walk through John's vision and revelation, it's, it's almost like a compilation of all the Old Testament visions, Just like Daniel, he sees this great throne with creatures all around. The creatures themselves seem to be a a mashup of Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, living creatures with eyes all around, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. All to say, John has entered the same heavenly courts that the prophets before him have entered. Well, as John is in this heavenly throne room, he sees, as we get to our passage this morning in chapter 5, that he sees one holding a a biblion, a a book, a scroll. And as we ascertain from the prophetic visions that this scroll is a a battle plan. It's, It's what will unfold in the end. It's how God will be victorious. The scroll is written on front and back, which is not normal 
with an ancient scroll. In fact, the back part of a papyri would have ribs in it and be very difficult to write on it. But this one's written on both sides. So unique, this book, and so comprehensive its plan for conquest. And this is good news, that the one on the throne has a plan. And you can think of John's particular situation as he is exiled, uh, that he is under persecution by the Roman emperor, has sent him away on account of God's word. He would be uh, encouraged to know that there is a plan in place for God's kingdom to come. But right away, we find a problem in our text, don't we? This, This scroll, this great plan is sealed seven times. The contents just like the prophets of old, are shut up in secret. And we find that even an angel cries out, who who is worthy? And we find that there's no one, no one in heaven, no one on earth or under the earth that is worthy to break the seal of this scroll. Now for us, this seems like a small problem right? Nothing a little Gugon couldn't take care of to get those pesky scrolls off. But what's implied here is that if there is not one that is worthy to open the scroll, then it means that there is not one able to carry out its contents. If the scroll can't be opened by one worthy, God's plan is dead in the water. God's plan for conquest will not and cannot be carried out. Which is why John begins to weep. I begin to weep loudly, verse 4 says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Was it all for naught? Was John's exile for nothing? Is God's plan dead in the water? You can think back and realize that this probably isn't John's first time having these feelings as he's the disciple that is said to be at the foot of the cross, looking as his savior takes his last breath, perhaps thinking similar things. Is is it over? Is this the day that the revolution has ended? Well, here again, he weeps, wondering if God's plan will really be carried out. Well, if the first thing we see in our text this morning is a sealed strategy, the next thing that we encounter is a vision of a worthy conqueror. As God, as John begins to weep bitterly in despair, we are introduced to one of the 24 elders. Why, why 24? Well, it likely represents the union of Old Covenant and New Covenant, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Uh, that is a representation of all of the redeemed here uh, being represented in heaven. Well, one of these cries out, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That Indeed, there is one mighty. There is one who is able to carry out God's plan. And as we look at the words of this elder, there's a few things of interest. 
One, this worthy one, is the Lion of Judah, which takes us back to the latter pages of Genesis, whereas Israel prophesies over his sons. When he gets to Judah, he says, it is your tribe, it is your line, it is your heritage that'll be a conquering tribe. You'll be like a lion that devours its prey, that the scepter of royalty will never, never depart from your line. We find that to be true when David shows up from the line of Judah, which is often or also what the elder mentions, that this one is from the root of David. In the case of Judah's line, David is given an eternal throne and promised that when he has a righteous son, that this righteous son from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, will reign forever. Well, it is this one from the root of David who is mighty and worthy to take the scroll, to look upon it, and to carry out its contents. As the vision unfolds, we see that this one worthy and mighty has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, before you go questioning your Trinitarian theology, this too is, is picking up from Old Testament prophecies and visions where, where Zechariah sees that the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, which are a picture of his omniscience, his ability to see everything, seven being the number of completion, spirits that go out into the world. This is all to say that this one is able to see everything, that he knows all. Of course, we know knowing is only half the battle, but this one also has seven horns, which again, throughout the prophetic liturgy or literature, a horn is a symbol of power. And this one has seven of him, the, the number of completion. So not only can he see all, not only is he omniscient, but he is omnipotent, that he is able to do all. And this is this picture that we see of this great one who is worthy. But above all these things, the elder tells us in verse 5, that the Lion of Judah from the Lion of David is worthy to execute God's plan for conquest because he has already conquered. Isn't this interesting? Weep no more, the elder says. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. It is done. He's finished a great work, and because of that, he is worthy. The battle can be fought because the battle is already won, according to this elder. Imagine what John must be thinking at this point. What does this one look like? <laughs> he hasn't yet received or he hasn't yet perhaps turned around to see the vision of this, this worthy one. This one who is like a lion who devours his enemies. Perhaps he had in his mind Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days. Daniel describes the vision like this. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him and thousands and thousands served him and 10,000s 
and 10,000 stood before him, similar to what we find in Revelation, right? And it makes sense. This is what a a mighty conqueror might look like. (laughs) Fire, (laughs) power, might. But you'll notice as John turns around, what does he see? Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Don't miss the irony. This great lion of Judah, this great conqueror, this one who has victory in his hand, appears before John's eyes as a lamb slaughtered, yet standing. This seems like a very strange picture of a mighty warrior. Sure, we memorialize the fallen soldier, and and rightly so, but we don't worship him. We certainly don't expect him to finish the battle victorious. And yet here in the heavenly throne, these heavenly hosts, these redeemed elders from old and new covenant are singing, are falling down before this lamb who was slain. How ironic that God's secret weapon against the global superpowers of this age is a lamb, a slain one, a bloodied one, a broken one, and yet one that is standing. Why? How how does this work? Well, as we consider this question, we can look to the song to tell us. And I want to do that next as we consider the song of the Lamb. So John tells us that the heavenly host sang a new song. This is something that we've come uh, up to several times in this series. A a new song is sung when there is a new situation. Uh, A battle has been won. There has been a victory that has occurred that changes the situation for the people. And so what do you do when a situation has gone from bad to good? Well, you sing, and so you are directed to sing a new song based on these new realities, and that is what we find again here. And this is how the song goes. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. It goes on, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the third stanza, it goes on, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The almighty and all-powerful one who is worthy to open the scroll is, according to this song, not worthy because of his great power, but he is worthy because he was slain. Again, ironic. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? 
Because you were slain and by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is worthy because he was willing to win the battle by losing it. He is mighty because his blood is mighty to save or to ransom, to buy back, to pay the debt of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. Reverend Henry Garrick was uh, brought up on a small farm in Missouri, but later in life finds himself very far from home. In his 50s, he was called to serve as a chaplain uh, to a notorious group of war criminals. Um, It was uh, Hitler's inner circle, uh, those that carried out his bidding. And during the Nuremberg trials, at the close of World War II, this chaplain was called to come and share the gospel with these 15. Well, Reverend Garrick in his memoir tells the story of walking to the gallows with one of these men who was found guilty. But in the years leading up to his execution, under the ministry of Reverend Garrick, this man had asked for a Bible so that he could justify his unbelief. so that he could read through it and figure out more reasons why he wouldn't believe in this Jesus. But instead of finding his justification, he found Christ. Or probably better said, Christ found him. And those same lips that had once barked Heil Hitler uttered amen under the waters of baptism. Those lips that had ordered the death of thousands receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in Holy Communion. In fact, several of these men in these years came to faith in Christ through the ministry of this pastor from Missouri. Well, as one of these criminals stood guilty at the gallows, guilty of horrendous crimes against society. In fact, so horrendous that our own government asked the reverend not to publish (laughs) his story so that they wouldn't be remembered in this way. But he he ends up publishing it in any way. And he tells of this one criminal awaiting the trap door to open, to rope him into eternity. The officer carrying out his execution asks him if he has any final words. And he says this, I place all my confidence in the lamb. The lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And he turned to his pastor who had shared about this lamb and says, I'll see you again. When we look at the world around us, when we look at the great brokenness, when we look at the lies, we look at the injustice, we look at the denial of truth and rebellion that we see almost everywhere. What we think is we want is for God to come in power like a lion, to devour that which is evil, to roar. But if that is how this lion conquers, which of us would stand?
which of us would endure such a victory? For we stand guilty before God's tribunal. We admitted it this morning already that we have not loved God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are guilty of crimes against humanity. We are guilty of crimes against divinity. But because of his great love for us, he conquers by laying aside all that looks powerful. He muzzles his roar. He cloaks his mane. And he comes as a lamb led to slaughter. And it is this image, according to the hosts of heaven, that show forth his power to save, that shows forth his power to be victorious, that shows forth his power to conquer. And it is in this way that he saves the world and carries out God's plan for redemption. He conquers by his blood in order to, as A.W. Tozier says, turn rebels into worshipers. And isn't that what heaven will look like? (laughs) A bunch of rebels saved by the blood of the lamb. As one author explains, the great scandal of Christianity is not that evil men go to heaven. It is that God loved them so much that he was willing to die to get them there. I can't help but wonder as John sees this vision and hears this myriad of myriad of angels, which if you do the math of thousands times thousands, myriads versus myriads, I'm not encouraging that you do that kind of math, but it's like a hundred million. That's the chorus that he is hearing. I can't help but wonder if he sees this picture and it finally makes sense. And as we said, John stood at the foot of the cross He watched his savior take his last and he must have had some questions. We know he had some questions. Even after the resurrection, I would imagine there were still some questions there. How does this all make sense? Well, I wonder if he sees this vision and he hears this choir of millions singing out, worthy is the lamb who was slain if it finally starts making some sense to him. If God is willing to send his son to die to ransom me, he will stop at nothing to carry out the fullness of his plan in the end. I wonder if John started to sing. That's what heaven looks like. Angels, lots of angels, these heavenly hosts, but also murderers, adulterers, liars, and cheats ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. A reality that garners only one appropriate response to sing. May it cause us to sing, because this is our song. The lamb of the song is our song because your battle against this world and even this battle against your sin has been won. I know you don't believe it, but it's true.
He is conquered because he has ransomed. It is finished. His blood has been poured out to atone for your sins. And the whole book of Revelation, therefore, can be summed up like this. Jesus wins because he has already won. And your life can be summed up in the same way. That you will win because in Christ you have already won. Yes, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, our Savior tells us. He has overcome the world. He has conquered. And because of that, the angelic song is truly our song. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy are you to finish whatever history will look like. Because you were slain. And by your blood, you have ransomed us for God. The mighty conqueror stands victorious as a lamb who was slain for you. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. May that be our song now and for all eternity. Let's pray.